Great, great. If you uh, have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, uh, it is a pleasure to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, Joe did not just find some kid from the street. I promise you, I'm an adult. I know I don't look like it, but I am one. Uh, I have a beautiful wife and a baby girl, so um, yes, I'm an adult. I'm here, and I'm excited to be with you all. Uh, and like Joe said, I am a pastoral apprentice at the Linworth Baptist Church up in Worthington. I've been serving there for about a year. Uh, love that church, love being able to serve there, but it's also a privilege for me to be here with you all. So uh, we are thankful to be worshiping the Lord together. And like I said, I, I have a baby. I have an eight-month-old. And when you are a new parent, there are many sermon illustrations that just start to come up. So you will hear some stories of a new baby uh, that might help us understand God's Word. So uh, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first 11 verses together. And then I will say a quick prayer as we begin. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He has commanded His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, your word is true, and it is right, and it is good. Help us this morning to understand what you have said to us. We pray that you would be magnified in our hearts and that we would glorify you in this time. Help us to understand your word. We pray that you would lead us by your spirit to know how to follow you, resist temptation, and to draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Temptation is something that we experience in many forms and strengths. Or, we use the word temptation to describe any sort of enticement or allurement of ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some things such as that are, could be considered minor temptations. You know, being tempted to have that second scoop of ice cream after dinner. Or ordering fries instead of a side salad when you're having dinner. Oh, there's also some mid-level temptations, meaning some, they are some effects, there could be some repercussions for giving into them, but uh, maybe they're not that serious, such as staying up a little bit later uh, on, a, on a work night. You might wake up that next morning and you're feeling more tired or lethargic than you have in the past. There's still some consequences, but it's not maybe as intentional. 
And then there's some big temptations, large temptations that are, are big that we can really experience the weight of. And in this passage, Christ is being tempted in a large way. Temptation in this context is referencing the enemy attempting to pull Jesus and pull us away from God and his ways. And some ask, is temptation itself sin? Well, no. It's the enticement to sin. And some temptation that we face in life doesn't appear to have outwardly sinful implications. Consider that temptation to eat a second scoop of ice cream. Is there sin in that second scoop? Well, maybe not overtly or inherently, although in our sinfulness, we might be desiring something that we don't really need. There might be some selfish motive behind it. And in in the New Testament, in the Greek, when temptation is being used or test is being used, it is always related to the enticement to sin, to lead us away from God and his ways. So uh, the temptation in this text, when it's talking about Christ being tempted, this is a serious temptation. The Lord Jesus is being tempted by the devil as he begins his messianic ministry. And so temptation is not something that we can minimize. It's not something that we can say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. I'm a good Christian. I'm a strong Christian. I don't, I don't have to worry about temptation. The Lord Jesus himself was tempted. And so we must soberly consider how Jesus engages with the devil as he is being tempted and then use his example to inform our lives and how we should respond to temptation because none of us are immune to temptation. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, that the devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. All Christians, myself included, must be on high alert for temptation. A question to consider as we begin uh, this text together, how are you being tempted right now in your life? Where is the character of the Lord being called into question in your life? Because as we will see in this passage, that's what's happening to the Lord Jesus. The character of the Father is being questioned. I have been wrestling through these questions myself as I've prepared this message, asking myself, okay, where, is, where am I being tempted to not trust in the character of God? So as we start the context of this passage, in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, Christ was just baptized and his public ministry had begun, and the Spirit of God had descended upon him and was leading him in his ministry. If you look just above that passage I read, starting in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then the temptation account that I just read begins. And the location of the temptation account proves its connection to the baptism account in the Gospels. In all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, temptation, the temptation account of Christ comes right after his baptism. So that's important for us to note because these two events are connected. God the Father had just verbally affirmed Jesus and his ministry And the Spirit of God had descended on Jesus, and then he was being led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. In this passage, we will see that the Lord 
intentionally entered the wilderness to be tempted. Then we will see the devil's three temptations of Christ. And then we will see the devil flee Christ and Christ being served by the angels. And we will learn that God is trustworthy. But temptation allures us and entices us to think otherwise. Jesus was enticed to think this way, and so are we. And we will learn this truth about God by answering these three questions. Why did Jesus enter into temptation? Secondly, how did the devil tempt Jesus? And third, how did Jesus respond? And so as we go through this passage, we're not going to talk about each temptation and response individually, but we will talk about all three temptations together. And then we will go back and talk about all three responses together. And through these questions, we will learn from the Lord how we too are tempted in the same way as Christ. And we will learn that we can resist temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit in the way that Christ did. So starting that first question, why did Jesus enter into temptation? We can look at verse 1 and 2, that Christ was intentional about what he did. Why did he enter temptation into this way? Well, we are unable to get inside the mind of Jesus. We don't know exactly why he did this, but the text gives us a lot of clues. Look there in verse 1, where it says that he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Right? There's intentional phrases and in all and all and all through that verse. And when we look at this text, we will not we will not only see all three members of the Trinity named, you'll notice those, there's already two in the beginning, Jesus and the Spirit. We will also see the humanity and the divinity of Christ on full display. Again, this is intentional. Christ's divinity is being called into question by the enemy. And his reliance on the Father is being called into question. And his connection to the Holy Spirit is being called into question. So you see how the Trinity is kind of being tampered with, so to speak, by the enemy. And so we break down verse 1, like I just said, to see how intentional the Lord is. First, Christ was led up by the Spirit to be tempted. The Holy Spirit had just descended onto Jesus, and the Father had just confirmed his ministry through his baptism. And it doesn't appear that Jesus was unsure of his next move, right? He ended up, he knew, I'm going into the wilderness to be tempted. It might be confusing when remembering Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he then later will tell us, lead us not into temptation. He tells us to pray that, but then what does he do here? He walks right into temptation. So is Jesus defying his prayer or what he tells us to pray for? Well, no. He was intentionally walking into temptation for our sake to show us what we ought to do. With the power of the Holy Spirit, he was going to experience temptation in his humanity. He was showing us how he is perfectly resistant to temptation. And he is showing us that the Spirit will lead us in this fight in the way that it has led him in his fight. He was giving us a glimpse of this kingdom living that is true of all Christians that he will then describe in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about how our lives are supposed to look as followers of Jesus. So first we see that he was led by the Spirit intentionally, and then we see that he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. 
It's another intentional aspect of what he was doing. This wilderness theme has many connections to two famous Old Testament accounts. One, the first one being the fall of man in the garden, and the second one being the wilderness of Israel. So first, we can recall in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the world, this beautiful, lush garden where man was present with God, lacking nothing. He had everything with God in the garden. In some ways, we could say that the garden was the anti-wilderness. It wasn't barren. It wasn't empty. It wasn't desolate. But in rather, it was full and lush and green. And man had everything spiritually and physically. And he was given one command. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. You may eat of any tree in the garden except this one. So God said, you have everything here except this one tree you cannot eat from. And then what happened? Despite having everything that he needed, man failed to trust God. He was tempted by the devil and he gave in to sin. We'll return to the Genesis account later, but we must acknowledge the connection here. How different is Christ's situation than Adam's? How different is it that he is barren in the wilderness and he is coming off of 40 days of fasting where he's experiencing this physical hunger? And similarly, we will see that this connection to the wilderness is connected to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness after they are freed from Egypt. This is detailed in Numbers 11 through 21. And how did Israel respond in the wilderness? Well, Numbers 14, too, says that all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would we die in this wilderness? So in other words, what did they do? They were in the wilderness, and they were doubting God again, similarly like Adam was. They rebelled, and they did not trust God and his character. And as we continue, the Lord Jesus entered into wilderness to show us how we ought to respond. Both of these Old Testament examples tell us about man's failure, about how man gives in to temptation and turns away from God and his ways. But our passage shows Christ's victory in wilderness, Christ's victory over temptation. Uh, a way to kind of make this make sense for us, I, I remember when I was 10 years old and my dad taught me how to mow the lawn for the first time. You know, I was outside with the lawnmower and he pulled the ripcord really easily and, and showed me how to do it. And I walked or whatever. And then I, I, I turned the lawnmower off. I let go of the thing, you know, and went inside and went back out. And I was confident that I could, I could start that lawnmower again. You know, I felt like I had the ability. I walk out there, I press the little button and, you know, and I'm 10 years old and I try as hard as I can and I can't do it. I can't do it, right? And, and then my dad walked out and he did it in just one quick second. He knew exactly how to do it, right? So if we think about Jesus in comparison to us, when he's faced with temptation, he always knows what to do. He always knows how to respond. And us in our sin, we get distracted. We think we can. We think we know what we're doing. But in reality, we fail. Left alone in our sin, we will give in to temptation, especially when we are weak or struggling in our faith. Adam and Eve, the people of Israel, we are no better than them. If left to our own devices, we look inward and trust ourselves. But Jesus shows up and gives us the example. 
the victorious example of what it looks like to overcome temptation. And notice he wasn't grumbling like the Israelites or doubting like Adam and Eve. He was in the wilderness and was submitting to the will of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do we find ourselves grumbling or doubting when we are in the wilderness in our own lives? It is in these moments that we are often the most tempted. When we are in the wilderness and it feels like God is not there, we feel tired and weak and vulnerable, and we grumble and doubt. So why did Jesus enter into temptation? To intentionally show us both his power over temptation and how we can triumph over it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we continue in this passage, we have the privilege of looking at this victory and his example. So what are these temptations that he faces? That brings us to the second question. How did the devil tempt Jesus? And again, like I said before, we are just going to focus on the temptation for a minute. So we're not going to talk about his responses yet, but, in rea- but we're going to just begin by how did, what words did the devil use? How was he trying to get Jesus to fall into sin? The devil is tempting the Lord in, it seems like, outward ways, like turning rocks into bread or jumping down from a high place or gaining the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus points the temptations back to God. And this is crucial to understanding what the devil is tempting Jesus to do at a deeper level. And I think that all three of the devil's temptations are rooted in the same question. Jesus, do you trust your heavenly father? Jesus, do you trust your heavenly father? All these temptations are connected to the character of the father that Jesus is supposed to be submitting his life to. The father who just publicly declared that Jesus was his beloved son. The devil takes that perfect Trinitarian relationship that Jesus just showed, and he's trying to allure him into thinking otherwise and to not trust the Father. And Jesus was at a moment of physical weakness. You look at verse 2. He was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Right. So the devil knew when to enter in. He knew when to see and try to get Jesus to doubt. And so we can ask ourselves the question as we look at these temptations. Do I trust my heavenly father? Societally, we have a trust issue. We struggle to trust authority. We struggle to trust our parents. We struggle to trust political leaders. And we are quick to say the phrase, if I were in charge, I would do it this way. If I were in control, things would be way better. And as we struggle to trust authority, that can translate to our trust of God. God, if I were in control of my life, I would do it this way. This is how things would look. That's a trust question. Is there an area of your life where you're you're trusting yourself over the Father? Jesus Christ just experienced a moment of spiritual encouragement in his baptism. He was baptized, declared to be the Son of God, And then the enemy shows up. And it is often after times of spiritual encouragement that we are, uh, we don't struggle to doubt God. And then the Satan, and then Satan, the enemy comes up and tries to allure us and draw us away from God and his character. Remember the garden? Adam and Eve had everything. 
but they were tempted, and the devil showed up, and they fell. Remember the wilderness in Exodus. Israel had just been brought through the Red Sea, been freed from slavery, but then the people grumble, and they're tempted. And as we go through these temptations to see what the devil decided to do, we're going to look at what's going on behind the scene, that the devil is making claims on God's trustworthiness, the character of God. So first here, we can look at verse 3 and see that the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And notice in this first temptation, the devil uses the same name for Jesus that was just used by the father in Matthew 3, 17. You are my son. And then Satan said, if you are the son, right? Jesus had just experienced that with the father. The devil is tempting Jesus with his own personal identity. He's saying, in other words, hey, Jesus, the father just said that you're the son of God. Certainly you shouldn't be hungry. Certainly you shouldn't be barren in the wilderness. Why would your father put you through this? Christ is being tempted to not trust that God will provide for him. But furthermore, the devil is tempting Christ to act independently of the Father. Why is this important? Well, think again back to the garden. He was tempting, the Satan, Satan was tempting the devil to not depend on the things that the Father had given him. And Jesus is being tempted to turn away from his Father and do things alone, independently of God the Father. He had just fasted for 40 days, presumably to commune with his Father and be sustained by him. For 40 days and nights, that was what was happening. And now the devil is enticing Jesus to rely on his own power and to doubt that God has and will continue to give him all of his needs. And we are tempted in the same way. We are tempted every day to act independently from God. This is the heart of sin, isn't it? Independence from God, right? And and remember in the garden, like we said, God wants us to depend on him and trust in his character. But when sin entered the world, we all turned away from God and decided we can do things on our own way. We can do things by our own power. But God did not leave us in that place. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life and die so that all of us could turn from our sins and trust in him but we still act independently from him. And in our rebellion, we don't think we need him. And we look around to the creation to give us what only the creator can give us. Jesus is tempted in this way to show us how clearly we will be tempted in the same way. So that's the first temptation. It's doubting the dependability of God. Jesus, are you really going to trust that God will provide for you? So then there's a response there, but we'll come back to it. And the second temptation, if you look down at verses 5 and 6, says this, that the devil took him to a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, again, use that same phrase, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil here is tempting Christ to not trust in the Father's protection. 
he inquires of Jesus, do you believe that your father would send a legion of angels to come down and rescue you if you jumped off this high place? And he uses scripture here for the first time. Notice right after Jesus cites a passage of scripture, the devil brings a passage of scripture to his mind. He uses Psalm 91, 11 and 12, where he's attempting to twist God's words. And we observe yet another connection to Genesis 3. Did God really say this? Did God actually tell you this? Again, that's temptation. This is a key trait of many temptations that we experience as well. Did God really say that to you? Does his word really promise that that's going to happen in your life? It's the same thing for us. And it's chilling to think side by side the enemy is using God's words to tempt us while Jesus is using God's words to comfort us. That so often can happen. We must always be watchful against that, about God's word being, tempt, being twisted and changed for us. So again, we can see how this temptation is rooted in the character of God. Satan is trying to get the Lord to doubt in God's protection of his people. Psalm 91 is a passage about how God is our fortress. Verse 1 of Psalm 91 reads, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The devil takes that. If, de- if God really was your protector, your shelter, your refuge, why can't you jump off this high place? Why can't you do that? Won't he come and rescue you? Even though our Father is our protector and our shield, aren't we tempted to doubt God in the same way? Aren't we tempted to doubt that he will protect us? When our lives are a mess, they often feel like God is not there as a refuge. And it appears that he maybe has ceased to protect us when our life is in turmoil. And you might be facing challenging circumstances right now, at work, in your family life, or a relationship conflict. And our temptation in those places is to challenge God as Satan is attempting to get Jesus to do. God, if you really are for me, you would keep this harm from me, or you would fix this problem. God, if you are, God, if you are, we say those words when we are tempted and we give in to those sins. Or we are tempted to think that God has abandoned us all together and that he's not really present in our circumstances. So, uh, like I said, I have an eight-month-old daughter, and right now she's experiencing uh, what the parenting websites call separation anxiety, where We can leave her in a room and we're sitting on the couch and she's totally fine, happy as a clam, right? Playing with a toy, looking up, seeing mommy and daddy, excited. And then we walk out of the room and what happens? The tears start to flow. She starts to scream, mama, 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 wants somebody there to comfort her. That anxiety and that worry when we feel unsafe is intrinsic. It's natural for us to start to sweat, our heart races, we get nervous, and then we doubt if God is really there. 
like an anxious, worried child who isn't aware of where their parents are, we can respond to challenging circumstances in our life with anxiety and doubting God's protection. Doesn't Jesus say later on in the Sermon on the Mount that the the, the flowers and the birds of the air don't act anxious, but we do. They trust that the Lord will protect them. Everything is going to be provided, everything that they need, but us in our sinfulness are anxious and we doubt and we lack trust So like Christ, we are tempted to not trust in God and his protection. So that's the second temptation. And finally, the devil tempts Christ by enticing him with all the kingdoms of the world if he bows down in worship. Verses 8 and 9 read this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How ironic is it that Satan is enticing the creator with his creation? He thinks he is in the right, and he is trying to convince Jesus that the world belongs to him, when in reality, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. While given dominion temporarily, everything in all of creation belongs to God. It is his So there are two aspects of this temptation that I want to unpack. First, the the connection we've been exploring, how the temptation is connected to the root source of trust in God. And then the temptation itself, that Satan is attempting to gain Christ's allegiance. We We experience both of these in our lives as well. So first, how is this connected to our overall theme of trusting God? We can look at redemptive history in order to understand this. Earlier on in Scripture, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord promises that the nations will be given to his Son. Jesus has promised the world in his messianic mission. And Jesus, like we said, remember, is entering into his messianic mission. This is the beginning. And he probably is remembering that that promise that he has that the world is going to be given to to him. So what is Satan trying to do? He is trying to speed up the timeline, so to speak. Through this temptation, he is trying to get Christ to doubt in God's perfect timing of his redemptive plan for the world. To paraphrase, he's saying, since the world is coming to you already, why wait? You can have it now. You deserve it now. I'll give it to you if you worship me. It's yours. Why go through the cross? Why go through any of that suffering? Why walk around with 12 guys that are going to doubt you and and mess around and do all these other things? Why go through that when you can have the kingdom now? And we lack trust in God in the same way. We are also tempted to not wait on the perfect patience and character of the Lord. We feel entitled to our desires and all of God's promises right now. Consider what awaits us in heaven from Revelation 21 at the end. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. But we want no more pain now. God, give me an easier life now. Take away my problems now. We want to be freed from temptation now. And some of those desires are right. 
we don't desire pain. We shouldn't desire that kind of stuff, right? But we have to wait on the Lord and his perfect timing. As we will see in a moment, Jesus Christ displays perfect patience. He shows us how to wait on the Lord. So the second aspect of this temptation is related to idolatry. Satan is trying to gain Christ's allegiance. Don't all idols do that? Idols tempt us to think that God is withholding something from us, that he is keeping something from what we have in our lives. Idols promise to give us something that we desire or something that God is apparently keeping from us. In other words, they overpromise, but always underdeliver. Satan thinks he can give the Lord Jesus something that he is lacking. Again, remember the garden? Did God actually say? Adam was tempted to think that, oh, God is withholding something from me in this tree. So I'm going to take and I'm going to eat. And we are tempted to worship idols because we think that they can give us something that God isn't giving us. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We are addicted to making idols and worshiping them. And a few common idols in our culture that we can have, and idols don't necessarily have to be bad things, they sometimes can be very good things. Things that God has created for us for our flourishing and for the betterment of society. We are tempted to worship our work. And it promises to give us things like fulfillment, money, purpose, and achievement. Some of us might be tempted to worship our spouse. Again, a good and perfect gift from, a, from above. And we worship our spouse thinking that this is the only place I can get affirmation or love or intimacy or we are tempted to worship material possessions as they can promise us status and comfort and stability. Again, these are good things that God has given for us and we take them and we distort them because they allure us and think, I deserve all of your allegiance. Every aspect of who you are, give to me, says the idol. And that is what the enemy is doing here to Jesus. If you worship me, I will give you what you need and what you want. Is there an idol in your life that is attempting to draw you right now, promising something that only God can give you? So we see these three temptations all connected to the trustworthiness of the Father. Jesus has been allured by the enemy and his crafty schemes. And now that we understand this temptation, let's look closely at Christ's responses. How did Jesus respond? And this will inform us on how we are to respond to temptation as well. So in all three responses, the Lord uses Scripture to combat the enemy. And most of the time when this passage is discussed, and often uh, application and a good application is for Scripture memory, Right? We should have the Lord's uh, and his word written on our hearts so we can recall it to mind when we are tempted. But if our task is just memorizing God's word, that will ultimately be futile if we are not aware of and actually intimately knowing the Father 
who these words are speaking about. Jesus' responses are Scripture. But what are they doing? They're reminding him of the true character of God. This is critical for us as we apply this passage to our lives. If we think Scripture memory is enough to resist the devil, we are mistaken. We must memorize Scripture insofar as it reminds us and connects us to the character of God. It has to remind us of who God is and his character and his promises. Because remember how all of these temptations are at their core trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father. So we will see how all of his responses are reminding him of the true character of the Father. Who is the Father that Jesus serves? Let's take a look. So in the first temptation, we see that the devil tempts him to turn stones to bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this citation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and they are Moses' words after the people of Israel were grumbling in the wilderness for 40 years. God had just fed them with manna, provided the food that they needed. But Moses was reminding them that this manna shall not be their life source, but they should depend on the words of the Father rather than live by bread alone. Notice that it's not bread alone, right? We still must rely on the physical provision that God gives us. He gives us food and water for a reason, because we need it in order to live. But it is not bread alone. We must rely on the words of God. So Christ calls this passage to mind when he is tempted to make food for himself. And he is reminded that the Father is dependable. He is trustworthy in this way. He does not need to act independently of the Father. He doesn't need to go to his own way and say, okay, God, I'm really, really hungry. I don't think you're going to give me what I need, so I better turn these stones into bread. He doesn't say that. But he reminds himself that he must rely on the words of God. So when we are tempted by the enemy to not trust in the Father's provision, we must remember that he is dependable and trustworthy in this way. I really struggle with this part of the Christian life. This is something that I constantly have to be reminded of. I am a hyper-independent person, as my wife says. You can just do it all yourself. You just always try to do everything yourself, right? And I need this reminder every single day. Uh, I just bought my first house as well, so I don't have any house illustrations, but actually, no, I have one right here. Uh, I just bought a house. We were just on vacation, and we came back, and the AC does not work. (laughs) Look at that. Uh, my immediate thought is, how much is this going to cost me? And that is a doubt question that my heart is asking myself. Do I actually trust that the Lord will provide everything that I need, even if my AC isn't working? We can depend on God for all that we need. Paul says in Philippians 4.19, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. What comfort, friends. The Lord will provide for what you need. And you might be doubting that right now. We are so quick to doubt in the Lord's provision. You may be in a season of financial hardship or where some sort of material 
thing that you need does not seem to be coming up in your life. God is a provider. And we can rely on him. And we must rely on his word. If we rely on bread alone, we will miss the character of God. If we just think, this is what I have in front of me, this is material, this is right what I need, we will miss so much of the riches and the glory that we have in Christ. So knowing this passage helps us fight the temptation to doubt in God's dependability. So that's the first response. Man shall not live by bread alone. And the second temptation, Jesus cites a unique verse also from Deuteronomy. And he tells Satan that we shall not put the Lord our God to the test. You see that in verse 7. And remember that Satan was tempting to test Jesus and his connection to the Father. Jesus, do you believe that God will protect you and rescue you? And this citation is connected to the testing of God with the water from the rock in Exodus 17. That water, God will not provide the water after they were wandering in the wilderness. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, 16 and 17, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So the people of Israel were trying to test God that he would provide water for them. And Christ is bringing this verse to light because when we are tempted to test God, that is the opposite of trusting him. Testing is the opposite of trusting. Think about when you were a teenager or you might be a teenager here right now. We all try to test our parents' limits, whether it was curfew or a rule that they give us or a freedom that they don't want us to have. We always ask that question as teenagers, yeah, but how far can I go? What if I do this? Will you uphold that? Will you keep it? Or will you bend and break, right? But we do the same with God. We are tempted to test him in different areas of our life. We often ask the question, God, if you really wanted me to do this, you would prove it somehow. God, if this was something that I was supposed to do in my life, whether it's a step of obedience or a call to move or move your family in a certain direction, We ask that question, looking for proof. And we do this because we are quick to lack trust in God and who he is. But Christ didn't need to test the Father because he knew his Father intimately. And he knew that God would protect him and that God is trustworthy. So he called to mind, we shall not not test the Lord. And for us, on this side of redemptive history, we have all the proof that we need, don't we? Jesus Christ died and rose again, proving his love and his trustworthiness to us. We serve a living God who has proven us finally and ultimately on the cross. He loves us and defeated our sin in order to get to us. Do you see that as proof of God's love for you? Do you see that as proof of his trustworthiness, of his character and his grace? Or are you tempted right now to look for some other sort of physical proof? Okay, Lord, yeah, I know that happened in in forever ago, and I believe that, I trust that, but in this circumstance, I need you to do something else to prove to me that you're actually there, that you're actually going to protect me. We ask ourselves that question all the time. But Jesus responds 
and reminds us of the trustworthy God that we serve, that he can be trusted. So then third and finally, in the third temptation, Christ is tempted by the devil with the kingdoms of the world. But remember, the root of this temptation is in idolatry, that Satan wants Christ to bow down and worship him, and apparently he will give him everything that he desires. Idols promise to give something that we desire or something that God is apparently keeping from us. And then Jesus cites Deuteronomy yet again. We know that this command, though, that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, this command is interwoven throughout all of Scripture, that the Lord is the only God worthy of our worship, who we just got to praise in our first song this morning. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. All my soul praises him, right? Because he is the only God worthy of our praise. Jesus is promising Satan, my allegiance is to the Father, and it always will be. I will not waver. I will not turn away from him. My gaze is fixed on the Father. I am looking at him. No matter how much you promise me, I know that his promises and who he is is greater. So the devil thinks, I have the world. The world is mine, right? But the Lord is the landlord. The devil is the tenant, so to speak. He thinks he has what is his, but in reality, it belongs to God. The world is the Lord's. And Jesus is trusting that. He knows that. He knows that the Father is the only true God and that he has what he needs. The world, the flesh, and the devil promise us so much. They allure us with tempting eyes in the same way that Jesus experienced it here. And the question to us is, do we know what we have in Christ? Do we realize who we get to worship, what we gain, what he has for us? So my daughter, she's coming back into the sermon. My daughter, uh, when we bathe her, she, you know, we put the water in and we pour out all these toys that we give her, that we bought for her, you know, just full of toys and, you know, they're colorful and whatever. And then there's also a, a washcloth in there that's dirty and whatever. And you know what's the first thing that she grabs? The washcloth. She grabs it and she sticks it in her mouth and she puts it on her face and she loves it. But the riches of the bathtub, so to speak, are two, are right in front of her. And she takes the dirty washcloth and thinks that that is the best toy out there. And don't we do the same thing with the world? In God, in Christ, we have all that we need. We have love. We have a trustworthy God who provides us, who has saved us. And we turn and worship idols and take the little washcloth and think that it's going to provide the joy that we desire. We are guilty of the same thing. And as we wrap up, this passage might feel somewhat daunting to live out. Jesus reminds us of these tenets of the faith, that we shall rely on not only bread, but on the word of the Lord, that we shall not test God because he is trustworthy, and that we shall worship the Lord as the only true God. Right? That sounds pretty, uh, pretty hard to do, lofty, particularly for 
us as sinners. Our flesh is weak, and we are so quick to give in to temptation, unlike Jesus, who perfectly resisted in this passage. So is there hope for us to triumph over temptation? That's a bonus question. Is there hope for us? Yes, there is. To synthesize and to conclude, I want to highlight four ways that we can resist temptation. Four ways that we learn from in this account of Christ turning from temptation. So first, as it says in verse 1, we too must be led by the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit. Remember, that's what Jesus did. He was led by the Spirit into temptation. Remember, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. The same Spirit that led Christ through temptation lives inside of us. The same Holy Spirit. God is inside of you. We must listen to the Holy Spirit and His promptings when we are tempted. And you know those moments. We have those moments. We are tempted to doubt God and His character and we sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit ushering us back to believe in God and His character. And we must follow Christ's example in this passage to be led by the Spirit. Notice as he recalls these Scripture passages, he was led by the Spirit all the way throughout to remember God and His character. Second, we must know the character of God. We must know it intimately. And as Christ was citing God's Word to combat temptation, He was being reminded of the character of the Father. As we seek to follow Jesus in Scripture, memory, and recall, we must know the God we are talking about. We must intimately know Him. If we are just citing Scripture for Scripture's sake, that might help us in the short term or in the intermediate, but that will not lead us from temptation. We must know God and the riches that we have in Him. We have all that we need in Jesus. Remember Philippians 4.19? God will provide all that we need according to the riches and the glory that we have in Christ. And how do we know God better and His character? By submitting ourselves to Scripture, to prayer, and to fellowship in the church. Growing in your knowledge and understanding of the character of God is implemental to help us fight temptation. Because we are not Christ. He is perfectly God and perfectly man, like that passage in Hebrews talked about. And he was perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit, perfectly able to resist temptation. And while we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are still in a fallen world. And the presence of sin still remains. So what that means is that every day we must relearn who God is. We must be re-reminded, God, you are trustworthy. You are worthy of my worship. You will provide what I need. So we must know the character of God. And thirdly, we must resist the devil. We must resist the devil. Look in verse 10. Uh, as he cites that passage, Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan. He pushes the enemy away. Are we this quick to resist the devil when we're tempted? I know for myself that temptation comes, and we kind of play around with it in our minds a little bit. 
okay, maybe he's offering me something. Maybe he's on to something. Maybe there is something that, that he has that, that God is giving me. We are, generally speaking, slow to resist the devil. But we are to listen to Jesus here and, and say, be gone, Satan, in the same way that he does. James 4, verses 7 and 8. Jesus lives out James 4, 7 and 8 in this passage. He says this, James says, that we are to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So Jesus just draw, drew near to God in his baptism. Then the devil shows up and tempts him. And then Jesus says, be gone, Satan, resists him. Jesus lives that verse out perfectly. He draws near to the Father and resists the devil. And God is faithful in this promise. He flees from Jesus. So we all need to heed this warning to resist the devil. And we can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us as Christians. We can look to Christ as our model and follow him in this way to resist the devil. And fourth and finally, is there hope for us? Yes, because we can be comforted by Christ. We can be comforted by Christ. Will we always perfectly fight off temptation like Jesus did? No, we won't. And I would be lying to you if I came up here and said, now we have to, we better do this, what Jesus did. We better white knuckle it and be able to get through the temptation because that's what God expects of us. While as kingdom people, we are called to this standard of holiness, we still fall every day. But Christ perfectly resisted temptation every time. Hebrews 4.15 is another verse that perfectly connects to this passage. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Isn't that a promise worth holding on to this week? That Jesus Christ was tempted, yet he did not fall. And we can look to him as the God who perfectly resisted temptation. He knows what we are going through in our temptation. How comforting is that? That Jesus does not know, he does not look at us and think, oh yeah, you guys have to deal with that. I didn't as a person. No, he experienced it in this passage. And he experienced it in an intensity that maybe some of us have never experienced in our life. He was led by the Spirit, but the devil was there just getting at him. And maybe we've never felt that experience in our temptation. That, that intensity, the presence of the devil prowling around like a lion. But Jesus did. And he eventually died on the cross for all of our failings. He died for all of the failed attempts at, at fighting temptation. And he took all of those on the cross. And he offers us forgiveness of when we fall into temptation. So when we fail to live this passage out, we must run to him. We must run to Christ and be comforted by him. And when we resist temptation, we must glorify Christ as the one who gave us the ability to fight temptation rightly.
as we conclude, as you look down at verse 11, after the devil leaves him, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus models this comfort that we must also experience in our temptation. The Father sent a legion of angels to comfort Jesus. And we don't really necessarily know what that looked like. What were the angels doing? Were they serving him? Were they, we don't know what they were actually doing with him. But it appears that Jesus was resting in the Father after the devil fleed him. And he was finding comfort in the character of God that he had just worked to remind himself of. This is the God that I am following. And remember, Jesus is beginning his messianic mission. So he just walked through temptation and the attempts of the devil to doubt God. But what did he do? He resisted and he pressed on. And he kept going. So friends, my challenge for us is to do the same. As you walk out of here and you're tempted today, because we will be, we will be tempted this afternoon. We might be tempted at lunch. We might be tempted uh, the second that the service ends to doubt who God is. But we must be reminded of the way that Jesus resists temptation and the way that we can too by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you are trustworthy because you are perfect and you provide all that we need. You have given us your perfect son, Jesus, to live a life and die a death for us. And Lord, you walked through temptation to sympathize with us. We pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would comfort us that when we fail to fight off temptation, that you are gracious and that you call us to come home to you. But Lord, you do call us in this passage to fight temptation as Jesus did. So we pray that we would do that this week. Help us as your people to resist the devil, to know who you are, and to flee temptation as Jesus did. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to worship you by our lives, that you would be glorified and that we would see you as trustworthy and as the giver of all good things. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.